be a great people, Kalel. They wish to be. They only lack the light to show the way. For this reason, above all, their capacity for good. I have sent them you, my only son. Hello everyone and welcome to The Great Everything, a place where we celebrate the great ideas and accomplishments of humanity throughout the ages. I'm Patrick, a former banking lawyer who saw the light and quit to dedicate my life to culture and philosophy. Today I've got a bit of a special episode for you because yesterday I received a call-in from Debunked over at Medicine Remixed. He had a fascinating question about leadership. See, yesterday I was talking about Napoleon Bonaparte and about how in times of chaos, the people have often and willingly turned towards dictators to solve whatever crisis was happening. Based on that segment, D called in and asked, what is a leader? And is having a leader an innate human need? So I responded to D in a series of segments that I'll upload throughout the course of the day. And I decided to break down his question into separate parts. What is leadership? Where does the concept come from? What is it for? And also, is the idea of having a leader suitable for today's challenges? And if so, to quote Highlander, should there be only one? So it's a bit of a big episode today and uh, I hope you enjoy it. As always, please let me know if you have questions or comments. A big thank you to Debunk because his question was fascinated and gave me the opportunity to really consider something that I hadn't really delved in before. And finally, before we move on, just a quick word about Medicine Remixed. If you don't know the station, it is fantastic. Dee and Riche are two doctors whose life story is quite similar to my own and Mark's. They too are in a, quote, serious profession. Just like I was a lawyer, they are doctors. They too started a blog, Injury Duty, in my case, thegreateverything.com. And they too are interested in exploring the larger meaning of life through a different lens, whereas I come at it from an intellectual point of view with culture and history and philosophy, etc. They have a far more modern take on it. They put in medicine, because that's their background, motivation, hip-hop and comedy, and it's a unique mix that you really won't find anywhere else on the internet. So definitely check out my boys D and Riche. Sorry, I like saying my boys because it's so unlike me, but, you know, that's how they talk and we're homies now. See, just dropping the slang but anyway that's neither here nor there check out their station but more importantly check out this station right now and catch you in a bit with more of the great everything but for the time being take it away d yo it's d medicine remix calling in again um hey listen all this napoleon bonaparte talk which by the way great shit loving it um has me thinking about this this notion of, of a leader, of a dictator, of a president. Um, what what's, what are your thoughts about even the the, the concept of having a, a, a leader? This idea of having a president, one guy who's supposed to embody all our beliefs and all our values and lead us. This do you feel it's an innate human need? You know, you, you have everything from Jesus to Muhammad. This idea that that. that one person uh, can figure this shit out, you know, and they're going to be the ones to get us through this. Uh, do you feel that that's even useful? Do you feel it's necessary? Do you think it's something we should continue to pursue? Your thoughts? All right, brother. Peace. 
So that was D from Medicine Remix. What a great question, very thought-provoking. But also there's a lot going on in that question. There's a lot of sub-questions there. So I really had to give it some thought on how to break it down. And I think this is possibly the best way to go about it. So here's what I'm going to do. First of all, I'm going to talk about evolution and how dominance hierarchies arise among social animals. And then I'm going to talk about the connective link between social animals and human beings, primitive hominids, and how those dominance hierarchies relate to them, and how the birth of language and stories helped create ideas of what a leader should be. Then I'm going to look at what happens when humans evolved into larger social groups like cities and nations. And finally, whether any of the leadership qualities that have evolved through that whole process are still relevant in today's society. Just a note on sources, what follows is based largely on the ideas of Jordan B. Peterson, a psychologist who wrote the fascinating book Maps of Meaning, in which the value of stories and myths within dominance hierarchies is explored. Also Yuval Harari, one of my favorite historians, and if you've been following The Great Everything, you know I like to periodically geek out about his ideas. There's some Herbert Spencer there. This week I spoke about his philosophy of evolution and dissolution. And the rest is just me tying all those things together through my own conjecture and my own experience as a classical historian. Because many of you don't know that, that is actually my degree, is in ancient history. So hopefully all those things together can come up with a coherent answer to Dee's question. And of course, if you disagree with anything, please let me know. I'm more than happy to discuss. Today we're asking the question, do we need leaders? Is leadership an innate human need? I'd say a good place to start is evolution. And I start by saying that most social animals with evolved consciousness have a leader, especially hunters. Wolves, hyenas, lions, they all have leaders. But also apes, they all have leaders. Social animals usually have some form of dominance hierarchy. And this is for a number of reasons, but the main one, I'd assume, is that living and hunting in social groups requires a form of cooperation. And cooperation means playing by the rules, which requires, at times, enforcing those rules. If the rules can't be enforced, they're not really rules, they're just suggestions. And usually, the task of enforcing the rules will fall on the shoulders of the most physically powerful member of the group, who will usually also be the best hunter. This physical superiority would also help in maintaining internal order within the group by minimizing in-group violence, by settling disputes and the like. But here's the thing, it's not just about physical power. Because a social group requires that cooperation, which means that a good leader needs to have good social skills. It needs to understand reciprocity. It needs to be able to mediate within the group, not just resolve things by violence. A great example is when wolves square off with each other and they engage in all these threatening displays, bearing the teeth, the hackles rising. And while they growl at each other, at one point the wolf with the lowest threshold for anxiety activation will surrender without even a threat of a real fight. And the wolf that surrenders will bare its throat and the dominant wolf will not tear the throat out which shows that even in a wolf society, there's a basic respect for the individual's value. Whereas in groups where there is no such respect for individual value and the dominance is based not on social bonding but just brute force, 
the leader isn't going to last long. In fact, the leader is likely to be taken out by a coalition of weaker males who are better at social bonding, those social skills, and who because of those skills have formed a tight compact with one another. They'll form an alliance to take out the leader, and you see this happening all the time in chimpanzee societies. So we can see that in social animals, the dominance hierarchy arises because we need cooperation to hunt, to protect ourselves from threats, and to maintain order. Cooperation is based on a set of agreed rules, but this only works if there's something that has the power to enforce those rules. And we can also see that the qualities that enable a leader to prevail and to maintain that authority are physical attributes like strength, but also social skills and an understanding of reciprocity, which I guess today would be what we call charisma. And finally, because being a leader increases your prestige within a group, the leader will also have access to all the best females and therefore have more opportunity to perpetuate his DNA, which will then encode those leadership qualities into the next generation of males. In short, the male qualities of strength and charisma become desirable not just because of their social utility, but because they are now entrenched within the collective genetic memory of that group. So that's an evolutionary take for why we have leaders. Next, let's take a look at what happens in more complex human societies. Today's show is a response to a question from my boy D over at Medicine Remixed, who asked, why do we even need leaders? In the last bit, I talked a little about social animals and dominance hierarchies and some evolutionary hypotheses for why certain types of pack animals evolved to have leaders. These leaders tend to have qualities of strength, so that the rules that hold the group together can be enforced, and charisma, or in other words, a knack for social bonding and reciprocity. Leaders who rule through fear are often overthrown by weaker animals who have the ability to form tight alliances with one another. Okay, so now let's talk about humans. For millions of years, our dominance hierarchies would have worked the same way as chimps. But in general, the right formula for a leader was physical strength plus social skills. Then, suddenly, about 3 million years ago, our brains started to grow rapidly, and we invented stone tools. And the game now shifts. Because now, our ability to hunt and protect isn't just about how big and strong we are. A flint spear is a great equalizer against other animals. So a finely made hand axe becomes a useful indicator of desirable sexual qualities, such as intelligence, fine motor control, if you can catch my drift, and also planning ability giving the maker of tools a reproductive advantage over his less dexterous peers. It's the same reason we, as humans, have an appreciation for art, because we have evolved to admire works of great skill. But more importantly, we've now added something to that leadership checklist. Strength, social skills and intelligence. So I assume this goes on for a few million years, until 70,000 years ago, we get the real game changer we start using language and our cognitive capacities, boom, explode. Suddenly, we have the ability to encode those desirable leadership traits into the minds of the members of the group. 
The qualities we look for, the qualities females find attractive and that therefore get reproduced, we don't just pass them on genetically anymore by bumping uglies, we now pass them on as stories as well, or to use another word, ideas. So we create myths about the hero, the embodiment of all the cultural values of that group, the embodiment of what it means to be a good, valued member of that group. So our heroes are strong, they are brave, and because we've always been a species of explorers who spread from Ethiopia into, well, Siberia, our heroes go into the unknown, into the underworld, the abyss, the lands of gods and monsters. And in those stories, they usually find some artifact, some technology, a treasure or fire, a golden fleece, a weapon. And like Prometheus, they bring back that technology to the group, sharing it and bettering everyone else. And that's reciprocity. And these heroes are intelligent too, they're cunning, they outsmart gods, they solve the Sphinx's riddle, they trick the Trojans with a horse or they blind the Cyclops, they play music until the three-headed dog Cerberus falls asleep. These are the qualities of our heroes. And then these stories, they become encoded into our culture that these are the qualities that we need in our leaders because these qualities help maintain the social order, these qualities keep us safe, these qualities improve our technology. And more, these stories tell us this is what it means to be a valued member of our society. So now, it's not just leaders who must possess those desirable qualities, but everyone else must aspire to those qualities as well because now it's become culture. It's no longer about what qualities were you born with, but who can best embody the values of our culture. So what happens when humans evolve into larger social groups, like villages, cities and nations? Humans have evolved to form dominance hierarchies in which a leader must have the desirable qualities of strength, intelligence and social skills or charisma. With the birth of language, we developed the means to encode these leadership attributes as virtues in stories about heroes who embody the values of our culture. This allowed us to transmit those ideals to the next generations by way of myth, teaching them which qualities were expected of a valued member of the community. But historian Yuval Harari tells us something else happens with language. These stories enable mass cooperation between people who don't even belong to the same community. Before, we worked in small bands. Everybody knew everybody else. Everyone was related. Everyone knew who to trust and who not to trust. But now, with stories, we're able to bond over shared values that go beyond our tribe. And this allows us to form larger compacts coming together over ideas, not just family ties. And this kickstarts our jump to the top of the food chain. Because one-on-one, -on -one, a Neanderthal can kill you. But now that you've got 500 or 1,000 small humans cooperating to go to battle together, nobody stands a chance. So larger societies start to form. And as about 10,000 years ago, we start to coalesce into permanent settlements, like villages and then cities, complex hierarchical structures begin to emerge. And something new starts to happen. We now get specialized. 
See, a large society can't have everyone doing the same thing as when we were hunter-gatherers. We need people farming, we need people building houses, we need people building weapons, people herding sheep, people making pots, people fighting, etc, etc. So as the philosopher Herbert Spencer put it, as we integrate into a larger whole, the individual parts of the whole begin to diversify. And this creates a new thing, social stratification. Don't really get that in lions. This, as well as the creation of private property and permanent food stores, which you don't really have with nomadic hunter-gatherers, starts to create a great potential for crime and resentment and social strife. But just like the wolves and the apes, in order to live together we still need to cooperate and violence between members of the group needs to be minimized. The social structure needs to be maintained. And two things are needed to maintain it. The stories that we can now call religion that we still need to believe in and that provide the rules for what it means to be a valued member of the society and someone who can enforce those rules if they are broken. And that's still the strongest person, which now doesn't mean physically strongest anymore, but the person who is in command of the warriors. But what about being the embodiment of all the other virtues of intelligence and social bonding and reciprocity? Well, here's the thing. By this point, we have these large societies and complex hierarchies, and in a city of 5,000 people, you might not personally know the leader. So you don't know if he embodies those virtues, but myths can be spun to justify his being the leader by saying that he embodies those qualities, or maybe even saying he descends from a god, that he's all-knowing, all-powerful. He only needs to embody those virtues enough to convince those directly beneath him in the hierarchy, those who prop him up, that he's a good leader. And that would usually be the military, and those in charge of the stories, the storytellers. And that used to be the priests. I'd say today it's the media. So another change has occurred. Hierarchies have arisen, and now the leader is someone who's remote, separate from the people. So he doesn't have to lead by example anymore. And his position has become calcified, entrenched, and his rule can be enforced by force. He only needs to stay on the good side of a very few groups of people at the very top of the pole. Leadership arises in social animals, including humans, because of the need to maintain cooperation and social order. Originally, the qualities needed in a leader were strength and social skills. Humans added another quality, intelligence, to that checklist. And then we entrench those qualities as virtues that everyone should aspire to by embedding them into our hero myths, which told us who we should try to be. But as broader societies emerge, the hierarchies become more complex and inequality increases and elites rise to the top of the social pyramid. The leader is now a distant figure who no longer leads by example, but by institutional power. The stories are still important, but now they are controlled by a class of priests who use the stories and religions and laws as a tool for social control. And so here we are today, and the question is, do we still need a leader? I would say yes, but. Our societies are bigger than ever and far more complex than anyone could have ever imagined. And in theory, a leader should still be the embodiment of the values that make those societies. 
we still have those stories we need to believe in to give us something to bond over and to aspire to. And the story can be anything, it can be the American dream, it can be the myth of the self-made man, it can be the international communist utopia, or the 72 virgins waiting for you in heaven, or the British stiff upper lip. These are models, ideals that we aspire to. But your average person doesn't have a great capacity for abstraction. They still need a concrete example. When you think about being a pacifist, you don't think about the concept of peace. You think, what would Gandhi do? Christians think, what would Jesus do? The Quran specifically says that the way to be a good Muslim is not to follow any rules, but just live like the Prophet. So we need examples, we need people to embody those ideals. But there's a problem though. How can one person embody the values of everyone in such a large multicultural society? especially in cases where some of the values are totally incompatible with the values of others. And think about the global society we are moving towards. How can one person embody Western values of individual liberty and individual human rights with the Confucian idea of submission of the individual to the needs of society? The Romans had a solution. Their president, the consul, was only one of two consuls both elected and each with the same amount of power. The Romans were the geniuses of checks and balances. The question is, would that work today? Or would it just mean total standstill in our increasingly polarized society? Another issue we have is that unlike in our prehistoric days when leaders emerged through individual value from the bottom, our class divisions mean that leaders are now chosen from the top so what happened to embodying values if we effectively just live in an aristocracy where people are born into leadership? And finally, evolution hasn't caught up with us yet. Our genetic code is still the same as it was 150,000 years ago in Africa, so we still privilege certain qualities in our leaders, like height and build, that aren't really relevant to the job of a leader today. We should start telling everyone, especially the women, that the real people we should respect in society are short, bald Jews, called Patrick. So yes, I think we do still need leaders to show us the way, to give us a model and to embody the values and the social cohesion that we aspire to. But perhaps it's time to sit down and have a bit of a think. Because given the types of leaders we've chosen recently, we might need a radical shift in the qualities we expect from those leaders.